0: From strength to more strength. Some of the most successful strategies were developed by two Australian psychologists, Meg Oten and Ken Chang. They generally recruited people who wanted to improve one specific aspect of their lives and could be given direct help in that area. Half got the help immediately, and the others served as a control group and received the help later. This procedure, called the waiting list control group, was a good way of making sure that the test group and the control group had similar goals and desires. Everyone was offered the same service, but some waited for it, and during that time they took the same tests and measures as the ones who were given exercises to strengthen their willpower. And those exercises were directly related to the people's goals, so that they would be encouraged by seeing the benefits of complying. One of the experiments involved people who all wanted to improve their physical fitness but hadn't been regular exercisers. Some immediately received a membership in a gym and met with one of the experimenters to form a plan for regular workouts. They kept a log in which they recorded every workout and exercise session. Another experiment involved students who wanted to improve their study habits. The ones who got the immediate help met with an experimenter to set long-term goals and assignments and to break down the tasks into smaller steps. Their study plan was coordinated with other obligations, like a side job, and the students kept a study log and diary to monitor progress. Yet another experiment gave people a chance to improve their money management by meeting with an experimenter to draw up a budget and plan ways to save more money. Besides keeping track of how much they spent and earned, they also kept a log recording their feelings and their struggles not to spend money they forced themselves to stay home to avoid the temptations in store windows or sacrifice vacations to save money or postpone purchases they would have ordinarily made. In all the experiments, participants came to the lab from time to time for an exercise that seemed irrelevant to their self-improvement programs. The experimental subjects had to watch a computer screen with six black squares. Three of the squares would flash briefly, Then all of the squares would start sliding around the screen, randomly switching positions. After five seconds, each participant had to use a computer mouse to indicate which of the squares were the ones that had flashed initially. Thus, to do well, you had to make a mental note of which squares to watch and then follow them as they moved around. What made it extra hard was that during this exercise, a nearby television was showing Eddie Murphy doing a stand-up comedy routine in front of an audience that was howling at his material. If you turned to watch him, or even just focused too much on his jokes, you'd lose track of the squares. To score well, you had to ignore the jokes and the laughter, focusing instead on the boring squares, a feat that definitely required self-control. The research participants took this test twice at each session. The first time was soon after they arrived at the lab and were fresh. The second came a bit later, after their willpower had been depleted. The pattern of results was largely the same in all the experiments. As the weeks went by, the people who regularly exercised self-control in doing physical workouts, studying, or money management got progressively better at ignoring Eddie Murphy's comedy routine and tracking the moving squares. In particular, the main improvements were found in resisting the effects of depletion, that is, on the last self-control test administered at each lab session. Thus, exercise increased people's stamina, allowing them to hold out against temptations even when their mental resources had been depleted. Not surprisingly, they also advanced toward their goals. Those in the fitness program got fitter. Those working on study discipline got more schoolwork done. The people in the money management program saved more money. But and here was a truly pleasant surprise, they also got better at other things. The students who did the study discipline program reported doing physical workouts a bit more often and cutting down on impulsive spending. Those in the fitness and money management program said they studied more diligently. Exercising self-control in one area seemed to improve all areas of life. They smoked fewer cigarettes and drank less alcohol. They kept their homes cleaner, They washed dishes instead of leaving them stacked in the sink and did their laundry more often. They procrastinated less. They did their work and chores instead of watching television or hanging out with friends first. They ate less junk food, replacing their bad eating habits with healthier ones. You might think that people who start doing physical workouts would naturally start eating better, but in fact the reverse has often been observed in other studies. Once you start exercising, you feel virtuous and therefore entitled to reward yourself with high-calorie treats. That's an example of the licensing effect, when you act as if one good deed gives you license to sin. But in this experiment, the group of exercises didn't yield to that temptation, nor did the group of budget-conscious people yield to the predictable temptation to cut down on their grocery bills by passing up on the more expensive fresh food and other healthy fare in favor of cheaper food. If anything, they began spending more money on healthy food, apparently because of an overall increase in self-control. Some of the people even reported improvements in controlling their tempers, an intriguing finding that was tested in a subsequent study of domestic violence by Oten, together with Eli Finkel of Northwestern University and other psychologists. The researchers asked people about their likelihood to become physically aggressive toward their relationship partners, such as slapping or punching them or attacking them with a weapon, in various situations, such as being disrespected by the partner or walking in on the partner having sex with someone else. Then the researchers had the participants in the study perform willpower exercises for two weeks, except for a control group. After the two weeks, the ones who did the exercises reported fewer tendencies to behave violently when provoked by a loved one both in comparison with their own pre-exercise baseline and in comparison with the controls who did not exercise. For ethical and practical reasons, researchers have to be content with having people report their inclinations to behave violently as opposed to trying to measure how often people actually hit, assault or otherwise harm their loved ones. Improved self-control predicted less domestic violence. All in all, These findings point toward the remarkable benefits of exercising willpower. Without realizing it, people gained a wide array of benefits in areas of their lives that had nothing to do with the specific exercises they were performing. And the lab test provided an explanation. Their willpower gradually got stronger, so it was less readily depleted. Focusing on one specific form of self-control could yield much larger benefits, just as self-experimenters from Ben Franklin to David Blaine had maintained. The experiment showed that you didn't have to start off with the exceptional self-control of a Franklin or a Blaine to benefit. As long as you were motivated to do some kind of exercise, your overall willpower could improve, at least over the course of the experiment. But what about afterward? As remarkable as the results were, the experiments had lasted only a few weeks or months, how hard would it be to keep up the self-discipline indefinitely? Here, once again, the case of David Blaine is instructive. The Toughest Stunt of All Before we told David Blaine about the scientific research into willpower, we asked him which of his feats had been the most difficult. This was not a simple choice for him, understandably. So many ordeals, so many varieties of agony. The 17-minute breath hold on Oprah was awful, but brief. For sustained terror, there was the last part of his 35-hour stint standing on the pillar when he was fighting hallucinations and the urge to knot off and fall eight stories to his death. For prolonged pain, there were the 44 days without food in the plexiglass box above the Thames. Not only did he have to watch people below eating merrily away, but he also had to look at a giant advertisement for batteries with the slogan, When Willpower Isn't Enough. He tried to appreciate the humor of the ad, but that got progressively difficult. By the 38th day, my mouth was tasting like sulfur because my body was eating its own organs, he recalled. I ached all over. When your body starts eating its muscles, it feels like a knife being stabbed into your arm. But the toughest of his stunts, Blaine told us, was the sixty-three hours encased in ice. When they sealed him in six tons of glacial ice in Times Square, the ice was barely half an inch from his face. He was overcome with an uncharacteristic surge of claustrophobia, and he started shivering from the cold immediately. The ice kept him miserably cold for the next three days, even though the outside weather turned unseasonably warm, which created a new problem. Melting ice, that caused a steady Chinese water torture drip of glacial water onto the exposed skin of his neck and back. Meanwhile, he couldn't nod off because leaning against the ice would cause frostbite and the sleep deprivation became the biggest problem on the last day when he was supposed to wait to be freed on a prime-time network television special. I started to feel I wasn't right, Blaine said. I've been through organ failure, but there's nothing worse than mental illness. I look through the ice at a guy standing in front of me and asked him what time it was. He says, two o'clock. I say to myself, oh man, I'm not done with this until 10 p.m. That's eight more hours. I tell myself it won't be so bad once there's only six hours left, so I just have to get through the next two hours. That's the kind of time shift technique I use to change perspective so I can get through these stunts. I waited for at least two hours, just patiently waited, and it was difficult. I was hearing voices. I was seeing people's bodies carved into the ice and I don't realize that these are all hallucinations from sleep deprivation. You don't know what's going on. You think it's real because you're awake. So I waited two hours and I looked at a guy through the ice and asked, what time is it? Gazing through the ice, Blaine still had enough mental resources to realize that this guy looked much like the guy at 2 o'clock. Then he discovered that it was the same guy. He goes 2.05, Blaine recalled. That's when things got really bad. Somehow he stayed in the ice until the prime time removal, but he was so dazed, incoherent, and weak that he had to be rushed off immediately in an ambulance. At the end, I started to think I was in purgatory. I genuinely believed that I was being judged and that this was a place I was waiting to go to heaven or hell. Those last eight hours were the worst state I've ever been in. To go through something that horrific and not quit, that took something that was beyond me. Yes, that did indeed sound like the toughest feat of them all. But then something else occurred to Blaine once he heard about the experiments by Baumeister and other scientists. After learning of the wide-ranging benefits of the willpower-strengthening exercises, Blaine nodded and said, That makes perfect sense. You're building discipline. Now that I think about it, when I'm training for a stunt and I have a goal, I change everything. I have self-control in every aspect of my life. I read all the time. I eat perfectly. I do good things. I visit kids in hospitals and do as much of that as I can. I have a whole different energy, complete self-control. I eat food based on nutrition. I don't overindulge. I don't drink. I don't waste time, basically. But as soon as I'm done with that, I go to the opposite extreme where I have no self-control and it seems to spread through everything. It seems like when I stop eating right, then I'm not able to sit down and read for the same amount of time. I can't focus the same way. I don't use my time the same way. I waste a lot of time. I'll drink. I'll do silly things. After a stunt, I'll go from 180 pounds to 230 pounds in three months. At this point, as he chatted in his apartment in Greenwich Village, Blaine was in his between-stunts mode. He'd completed a brief stunt, brief for him anyway, that involved a few days of hanging out with sharks, completely unprotected in the open ocean, for four hours a day. And he was starting to work on plans for drifting across the Atlantic Ocean in a glass bottle, but that project was still indefinite. So he'd been relaxing and putting on pounds. You're catching me at a time when I'm the opposite of disciplined, he said. I'll eat perfectly for five days and then eat horrifically for ten days. I'll eat perfectly for ten days and then eat like a maniac for twenty. And then, when I'm ready to train again, when I get really serious, I'll drop about three pounds a week. And that stays consistent, so I'll drop twelve pounds a month. So in five months, I'm completely transformed and my discipline levels are really high. It's amazing. I have self-discipline in work, but I have none in my life sometimes. Hanging out with sharks, holding his breath for 17 minutes, freezing for 63 hours, and ending up in purgatory, all that he could handle. But the mundane daily stuff could still frustrate him. His ordeal in the ice set a world endurance record, but the feat didn't make it into the Guinness Book because he never got around to filling out the paperwork. He had the papers, but he kept procrastinating. He had fasted for 44 hours in London, but nowadays he didn't have the willpower to avoid the food in his refrigerator. One reason, of course, was the ready availability. I don't think I could have succeeded on a 44-day straight fast if I was in this apartment, he said. At the box in London, there was no way for me to be tempted because I was in that space, which was part of my reason to make it public because I knew I would have to do it. But even if he couldn't do a seven-week fast at home, why couldn't he simply cut back a little on the daily meals? Why did keeping up a modicum of discipline in eating and reading and working efficiently seem so difficult at the moment? Because he didn't have the motivation. He had nothing to prove to the public or to himself. He and everyone else knew that he could control himself when he wanted to, and nobody was going to fault him for giving himself a break between stunts. For all his amazing willpower, he faced the same problem as the rest of us when dealing with the biggest self-control challenge of all, maintaining the discipline not just for days or weeks, but for years and years. For that, you need techniques from a different kind of endurance artist.